everyone. Uh, this is the next in the regular CMS series of Talking CEE videocasts. Uh, this is on the very interesting topic of COVID, the second wave and beyond, and what the legal issues are. Uh, I'm your host, Ian Batty. Look, we've had an interesting time this year. The pandemic has had a very disruptive effect on different parts of the world at different times. Back in the very early parts of the year, we were relatively unaffected in Europe, but we saw often supply chains being disrupted by what was happening, particularly in China and elsewhere in Asia. And that uh, disrupted the ability of some businesses to serve their customers here. Obviously, then from about March onward, we, we saw the first wave hitting our region. Lots of companies were affected by lockdowns. They were affected by problems at borders. Often they couldn't get their products across borders. Um, certain sectors such as airlines, hospitality industry were badly affected. But then we started to emerge in the summer things seemed relatively normal and i didn't think this region was too badly affected compared with many parts of the world the general consensus was that ce had done particularly well but obviously in recent weeks things have changed uh, some of the highest infection rates in europe are in our part of the world COVID is having a major disruptive effect um, that's creating quite a lot of uncertainty and then we have sort of other issues which are creating uncertainty we've got the impact of Brexit increased tensions with China uh, we did have the US election perhaps that's less of an uncertainty now uh, we've got environmental threats as well uh, what new legislation will there be in that field uh, then We've got allegations of increased authoritarianism in certain countries in the region. We've got people marching on the streets in Poland. And all that taken together creates quite a lot of uncertainty uh, for us in the region. So the purpose of this webinar is to look at some of those issues of uncertainty. How do they affect business in Central and Eastern Europe? What do we do if we think our suppliers won't supply us? Uh, what do we think if we can't supply our customers? What do we do if we think our customers or our counterparties are in danger of going insolvent? Uh, all interesting questions, all exercising many businesses at the moment. And thankfully, we've got two expert speakers on this video cast today. Uh, Artur Bednarski is an associate in our Warsaw office. He focuses on insolvency issues, and he'll be talking us through some of the insolvency uh, issues that businesses need to be considering at the moment. Then we have Olga Schenk. Uh, she's counsel in Kiev, an expert dispute resolution lawyer, and she's going to be talking particularly about force majeure and contractual breaches. So there our expert team today. Uh, moving on, I'd like to introduce Olga and ask her a question. So, Olga, lockdown has affected the ability of many suppliers to fulfill their contractual obligations. And obviously, it's led to further disruption in supply chains at many levels. How in your experience have companies been tackling that in recent times? And have you seen any improvements? 
Well, thank you very much for your question, Ian. Yes, actually, this is true that during the first wave of pandemic, the companies faced difficulties with the supply chains and supplying of goods on time uh, due to some pandemic-related restrictions. And actually, it's also true that the companies started invoking force majeure clauses in their contracts to justify uh, those non-performances or underperformances. And the reality is that uh, the companies sometimes still do invoke those force majeure clauses. Uh, and it is important to understand in that context that uh, force majeure is something that it's uh, uh, regulated very differently in different jurisdictions. And there are even countries in which the force majeure is not regulated at all at the level of law. That's why um, the force majeure clause in the contracts is very important. And specifically be bearing in mind that claiming force majeure and proving force majeure is not such an easy exercise. That's why the most recent trend we see now is that the companies are looking carefully into their force majeure clauses in the contracts and they are trying to review them, adjust them, improve them and also improve or change or review other important clauses in their contracts in order to ensure that they are now well protected from those shocks uh, they, they saw during the first wave of pandemic and are well prepared to do their business normally. Thanks, Olga. I think most of us who are lawyers are encountering situations where uh, companies are claiming force majeure. What would you recommend if a company does found, find one of its counterparts claiming force majeure? What should they do? Well, actually, that's, uh, that's very easy. Uh, if your counterparty is claiming force majeure, the first thing to do for you is to go and see uh, the force majeure clause in the contract and also to check it with the uh, applicable law. Uh, it is really important to do because in practice, we sometimes see the counterparties, these honest ones who are trying to claim force majeure uh, with no legal grounds or even sometimes simply by mistake. So, some, so the first thing to do is to check the force majeure clause, there are two uh, groups of issues to be checked. First one is rather technical and relates to the procedure. Well, it is necessary to check the deadline for the force majeure notice um, um, within which it was served on you. There must be something uh, in that respect uh, stated in the contract. There also needs to, che to be checked uh, the form of the force majeure notice. Like normally it's a written letter, a formal letter, not just an email, but again, it depends on the contract. And one more very important formal thing is uh, to check the evidence, which is referred to or submitted together with the force majeure notice to confirm that the party is really uh, experiencing the force majeure. Uh, once you do, you've done the technical check, uh, another thing to check is uh, the relevance of the non-performance under the contract uh, with the uh, circumstance that is claimed as force majeure, because there must be a direct causality, a direct link between why the contract is uh, not performed or underperformed and what is claimed as the uh, force majeure circumstance. Uh, it is really important because, for instance, in Ukraine, uh, mere lack of money to pay for the supplied goods would never be qualified as force majeure. Uh, and at the same time, if, for example, due to uh, pandemic-related restrictions, the borders are closed, then probably the delay in the supply of particular goods would qualify as a force majeure, provided that everything is like uh, properly uh, proved. Uh, that's why uh, all these things need to be uh, very, uh, checked very carefully. And uh, one more thing you need to understand with that respect 
uh, if you believe that the force majeure notice is groundless, it is not uh, obvious that it is not mandatory that you accept force majeure notice. So if your uh, counterparty is serving you with the force majeure notice and you don't believe it, you can uh, reject it and insist on performance under the contract normally. And even if the contract is not still performed, then to impose some penalties for such non-performance. So force majeure notice is not something that you have to accept or uh, no questions asked. But uh, at the same time, if uh, you receive the force majeure notice from the counterparty and you fairly see that it is reasonable, it's justifiable and it's true force majeure notice, then um, what I would recommend to do is to have an action plan for the worst case scenario, meaning that if you see that your counterparty is not able and will not be able to perform normally, then you would need to understand what um, can be done with this, meaning either extension of some deadlines or amendment of the contract or even uh, the termination of a particular contract in order to ensure that some uh, um, non-performance or inability to perform by your counterparty does not disrupt your own business and you can continue working normally. Okay, thanks so much, Olga. Certainly, in my experience, quite a few claims of force majeure fall down because the party claiming it can't demonstrate that direct link. Look, moving on, uh, clearly, some of what has happened recently has resulted in even more negative effects on participants in supply chains, contractual relationships. And some suppliers have clearly been in need of financial assistance and some financial restructuring, or in the worst case, bankruptcy. Uh, what options do businesses have and what are your recommendations for businesses to address existing relationships and pending supplies in case of difficulty on the part of their suppliers? O over to you, Arta. Uh, yes, thank you, Ian. Actually, as the second wave of pandemic is hitting Europe, uh, uh, more and more businesses are facing financial difficulty and uh, uh, no one wants to be caught by surprise and realize that the spare parts they ordered are not coming because of insolvency of the supplier or that significant part of the revenue is not going to turn into cash because of the moratorium affecting the trade partner. Now, when, when there is a financial difficulty, uh, what is crucial is information. The sooner the problem is identified, the more options you have. So it's very important to closely monitor the financial standing of your trade partners. You may use publicly available online portals. If information there is not uh, sufficient or is not available, uh, you may request a professional financial report prepared by an external entity. And once you identify that there is a financial issue, you should develop some kind of clear strategy what you're going to do. One option is termination. You may terminate your contract, uh, but you need to remember that uh, moving from, from termination to uh, amicable solution uh, may secure a more favorable contract um, uh, uh, treatment in, in future once the pandemic is over. And here we have just uh, uh, endless options. You may uh, give your contract partner some breathing space, provide him with some liquidity, take some security. You may also consider uh, using business credit insurance if you are afraid of your uh, trade partner uh, uh, solvency or, or that there may be a, a payment default. Now, if the situation is really bad and your trade partner becomes insolvent, 
you need to follow the rules carefully. Register your claim uh, in timely manner, contact the administrator and get yourself informed about the uh, progress of the proceeding. However, well, the, the pandemic is not just a problem. Actually, it may be an opportunity for companies with strong financial standing and good cash position. It may open uh, opportunities for mergers and acquisitions. Uh, acquisition of a uh, competitor with uh, poor financial standing uh, may give you uh, additional market share. Uh, and you may also try to find synergies by buying your uh, suppliers facing some kind of financial difficulty. Thank, thanks, Arthur. Very interesting. On the positive side, uh, we saw during the first wave governments across our region react with a range of wide range of support schemes. Um, but many of the packages have been used up. Uh, what options do you feel businesses have today if those support packages have come to an end? Yes, uh, that's true. Um, the first wave of pandemic was kind of a shock for everyone and the governments announced nationwide lockdowns, businesses closed. Um, and the uh, amount of state uh, aid was just uh, uh, enormous. Helicopter money was available virtually to every business affected by COVID. Now, the second wave is different. The governments are not so keen on announcing nationwide lockdowns and uh, the state aid is not going to be so widely available. What we do see is that it will be addressed only to certain sectors, those which were uh, mostly affected by COVID-19, like tourism, leisure, hospitality. Now, um, if you are in a business facing financial difficulty and you are seeing that the financial aid from, from the state, which was keeping you afloat uh, uh, during the first wave, is coming to an end and that you have used up all options, you need to think about some form of restructuring. Uh, it may be um, purely consensual restructuring of your trade relations with your with your partners or your financial relations with, with banks and other lenders. But if, if you're not able to uh, to uh, find a solution in, in on a purely contractual ground, you may need to refer to some more formal restructuring proceedings. Now, um, if if you are on the, on the opposite side, I mean, if your uh, trade partner is facing financial distress and is opening uh, restructuring proceedings, uh, you need to carefully check what is your legal situation. Often, legal restructuring law regimes uh, contain provisions which uh, significantly affect your legal relations. So it may turn out that. Uh, uh, your debt is not going to be paid uh, uh, until the end of the proceedings. It may turn out that certain uh, transactions affected before the opening of the restructuring proceeding will be voidable. And uh, that at some point in time, you will be asked to vote about the arrangement. So it's very important to verify your legal position and consider what is, uh, what is, uh, what are the effects. However, uh, what, what I would like to mention is that CE will have some kind of advantage in future over other countries because um, uh, in 2011, uh, 2021, um, most Euro European Union countries are supposed to implement preventive restructuring directive. So uh, it will bring to Europe a taste of uh, US chapter 11 procedure with uh, 
cross clampdown uh, arrangements with uh, uh, stay affecting payments to all debtors. So it will be somehow unified. And uh, once you learn what are these principles, it will be easier for you to navigate in your contractual relations among jurisdictions in European Union. Thanks so much, Artur. Turning back to Olga, um, in your practice and beyond, uh, do you see contracting parties willing to cooperate or, or do you see, on the other hand, less patience these days and more disagreements ending up in court? Uh, in fact, do you see a lot of uh, cases already pending with courts in relation to these matters? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ian. Well, actually, uh, from my practice, I would say that the contracting parties, especially under huge construction contracts, they are much more inclined to cooperate and to settle, to negotiate in, in order not to go to court, but to find some ways to uh, mitigate and decrease their damages. Um, actually, uh, this is and the, the practice sh shows that these uh, practices are very efficient uh, in reality, and uh, this is the first thing I would like to advise everybody if you are performing under the contract and you see that you will not be able to deliver something on time then do not sit and wait until you are in a technical default but instead uh, reach out to your counterparty start negotiating talk to the other party and it's very likely that you will be able to find a mutually acceptable solution that would allow you to uh, continue working normally uh, in fact I had a case in my, in my practice when I had a client uh, who understand at a certain point that he, the client would not be able to um, complete certain serious construction works uh, on time and commission the object again on time and that was because uh, during the COVID restrictions the clients experts engineers were not uh, able to enter Ukraine uh, so we started negotiations with the other party the amounts at stake were really huge uh, and we managed to find a solution and the contract was restructured the deadlines were extended and in the end the contract was uh, completed the object was commissioned and it's working now happily and everyone's happy and there are no claims controversies or conflicts between those parties so everything is uh, uh, really good uh, on the other side i must admit that there are other companies like mostly traders, they are much less inclined to negotiate. They are they prefer to go to court directly uh, or um, without any negotiations period at all. Uh, and this is actually the reality. But still, uh, in such situations, you need to understand that uh, contrary to popular belief, like proving force majeure in court is not that easy to do. This, these cases are never straightforward and the circumstances of force majeure are like... Um, can or cannot qualify as force majeure when it all comes uh, becomes uh, discussed in court. So that's why uh, the situation is currently that yes, indeed, there are many cases already that are pending in court because of force majeures uh, under the contracts. But still, I would really recommend not to underestimate the settlement proce uh, procedures and negotiations because this uh, can provide anyone with the solution to uh, be able to continue continue the business instead of litigating it. Okay, thanks so much, Olga. Um, I want to draw this to a close. I think there are a few key takeaways from this. One is that you should be monitoring your counterparties, try to keep a, an eye on what financial state they're in. Two, if problems do arise, talk. 
usually better than ending up in, in court. And three, if there is a dispute or if someone does claim force majeure, recognize that often these situations are less than clear-cut, and very often there are counter-arguments that can be used, and that's probably when you want to turn to your lawyers. I appreciate that we're going to have a, a tough few months ahead of us. Probably we will have more cases like the ones we've been talking about. But I also think that we've got some light at the end of the tunnel. When we emerge from COVID, when people have been vaccinated, I think our part of the world has quite a lot to look forward to. Um, governmental debt levels are lower in many countries over here than they are in Western Europe. Um, I also believe that quite a lot of manufacturing companies are going to be looking at nearshoring effectively their manufacturing, relying less on supply chains in China, as they've seen what can happen if you uh, do rely too much on suppliers in very distant parts of the world. And also, I think we're probably going to see more investment because there is now a more readily available labor pool. And that has been an issue in the recent past. Companies haven't been investing here because they don't think they can get workers. Now they probably will. So at that point, optimist, a little bit of optimism on my part. I'd like to draw this session to a close. I'd like to thank our two speakers for their excellent contributions and would like to thank you for listening. Please do reach out to us if you have any questions and there'll be another Talking CE videocast coming along soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>